0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What's happened at home clearly is a malaise in many electorates that the opposition has been capitalising on. I look
1: forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government,
0: it was a green slide.
2: Liberal seat, two-term
0: incumbent, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs
1: across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from
2: RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And PK, the end of the parliamentary year draws near. You might think, given the recent and rapid slump in the polls, the government would welcome a Christmas break. But actually, after a few very bad months, I think what the Albanese government probably needs is a few extra weeks to try and right the ship before all of us head into summer bliss. We're going to be talking about this midterm slump with Anna Henderson, Chief Political Correspondent at SBS. She'll join us shortly. But PK, I know we don't like to talk about polls week to week, but I do think it's worth drawing attention to the recent polls. There's been a swag of them just to show people the extent of the slide. Two polls this week reveal Anthony Albanese's approval rating has really taken a dive, reaching its lowest level since the election, according to News Poll, with a a drop of 12% since July. The Guardian Essential poll tells a similar story, the PM moving into negative territory for the first time since the election. Labor's primary vote has also fallen. News poll shows Labor's primary vote at just 31%, which is below where it was when they won the election, and that was already at very, very low levels for a primary vote for a major party. So there's also a couple of clear messages in the polls, PK. People want more focus on their cost of living pain. They want more government help, aka handouts. And they give the government, it would seem, little credit for the budget surplus, wage increases, or the $23 billion cost of living package it's already delivered. It's it's a tough time to be in government, PK.
1: It sure is, Fran. It is... It is the hardest time this government has had so far, and they acknowledge that. I think even publicly they're acknowledging it a little bit, but very much privately they know. Let's just look at the circumstances that have led us to this moment. Firstly, the biggest circumstance is that this, I do think, routinely happens to governments at around this time. So that is not unexpected. But then specifically, what's happened here is a couple of things. I think there has been a a mishandling or the perception of a mishandling, and that's just as significant of a few recent events, like, for instance, the failed voice to parliament referendum, the PM's many trips. Now, I personally, and I've said it many times, think that they are absolutely legitimate for a prime minister to be doing it, but legitimate or not. They have created a perception which is a problem for the government. And at the same time, I think, as you say, there has been, you know, just some messy weeks or so in Parliament that we've been talking about, like, for instance, how to respond to this High Court ruling and the legislation around it, all of that. And then there's the kind of other other things that the government's been slow to respond to, the very, very strong attack lines from Peter Dutton, which I think they should have seen coming on some of these issues. They should have seen coming because they've seen Peter Dutton operate for a long time now. They should know the way that he communicates, the way that he has cut through on some lines and preempted some of this. So I think they've left themselves hanging a bit and they should have been more prepared. I think they've really handed in some ways the opposition an opportunity to to sledge the Prime Minister on this issue, particularly around cost of living. Now, the the news poll you referenced found that 50% of Australians feel they're in a worse financial position than they were two years ago. Um, so they feel that perception being everything. And of course, interest rates are a big part of that story. And the key part of all of this is that middle Australia demographic, so that shows a clear vulnerability for Labor and really it's a ripe place for Peter Dutton to exploit. We're going to get into more of that with Anna in a moment, but it's very, very hard time for this government. And it's very important that over the next couple of months they're able to reset or they'll be
2: in serious trouble. Yeah, and how are they going to do that? I mean, we know in a couple of weeks the Treasurer will hand down the mid-year economic outlook. Some Labor MPs are urging the government to do more, spend more and spread the energy bill relief, for instance, a bit wider in that statement. But I did hear the Treasurer talk to you this week suggesting there won't really be new measures in that outlook. Um, Personally, I think housing remains a major issue, if not the major issue for so many Australians, of course, um, you know, in terms of rents in particular. These polls show Labor losing some support to the Greens and the Teals, so that's to its left flank as well. Um, so the support rose for the Coalition, it also rose slightly for the Greens and the Teals. I think housing policy is a key, key reason for that. And of course, PK, this polling coincides with the ongoing fallout of the High Court's ruling that indefinite immigration detention is illegal. In the wake of that ruling, so far 141 people have been released. They had to be, and this week the High Court handed down its reasons behind the decision, which ironically seems to give the government a bit of a, a hint on steps it could take to lock up some of these people again, which is what it wants to do as it tries to fend off the the opposition. Yeah, and the court ruled that it was illegal, of course, to indefinitely detain non-citizens
1: who had had no prospect of being repatriated or sent to another country. Like, there's there's no way it can happen. Uh, and who have served their time. I think that's a key point. That that overrid a 20-year precedent, right? It's a big deal. Now, uh, the way the government's responded to this, though, has been messy, and it's left the door open for a lot of attacks from the opposition. And we know this is the most comfortable ground for Peter Dutton. I mean, he seems... And the most uncomfortable ground for a Labor government. Yeah, which they know. And so we've heard really tough talk from the government as they try to preempt it. But it always, at least in terms of the way it's played out politically, seems like it's reactive all the time, even though the, the line is quite tough. I mean, let's just hear, for instance, from the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, speaking to me on Our Own Breakfast. You'll get, you'll get the point about that tough talk I'm talking about. What's really
0: important is that the High Court has left space for the Parliament to legislate to get the most dangerous offenders off the streets, and that is the government's goal here. Our single-minded focus throughout this entire issue is how do we keep the Australian community safe?
2: We will build a preventative detention regime which is constitutional but we need Peter Dutton to work with us and I call on him to do that.
1: So that was the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. So, Fran, the government is keen to move on this very quickly. In fact, she, you know, asked me a question and it's saying, have you seen a government you could hear a frustration <laughs> do anything as quickly as this? I heard that. One yeah. week
2: and one day we did this. Have you yeah. ever seen
1: that? Uh, yeah. And and the truth is I do think it was quick, but equally I think that, that it did look reactive. They looked Be- flat-footed. They did and also they looked like they were being dictated to by mm. Peter Dutton. I think that, that creates a perception issue too in the left where they're dealing with the Greens. So that this is a wicked problem for them. They want to seem very tough on these issues. They don't want to allow Peter Dutton to exploit it, but equally they seem like to be abandoning some of the, the very principles of natural
2: justice at the same time. And that is also a problem for them, isn't it, Fran? It sure is. As I just said, you know, on the left flank there's the Greens and the Teals. They're really nipping at that particular issue, Very critical of some the tough new measures, you know, the ankle bracelets, the curfews for all these people. Um, Not all of them have, you know... It's a range of issues. Yeah, exactly. The government is now, that it's been handed this lifeline, in a sense, from the High Court, that it can bring in preventive detention. It's very keen to do that by the end of next week when Parliament rises, so it will get it through the Senate next week. Um, The the opposition, meanwhile, trying to drag out the government's discomfort, make as much mileage as possible. Things got very willing in the Parliament this week, particularly between uh, Peter Dutton, Susan Lee and Claire O'Neill who, you know, must have mentioned Peter Dutton's name a dozen times this week easily. But in the end, PK, I think the opposition will have to support this legislation next week, probably with a few amendments to force a point, because otherwise they'll be accused of doing exactly what they're accusing the government of, which is allowing dangerous murderers and rapists to roam free, won't they? Oh, it's... On it's, it goes.
1: It's on it goes, honestly. Um, and I think at the at the heart of all of this... Fran is not only that the government was left flat-footed, as we've said, right, but that that this now has dominated at a time when the government, as I mentioned and you mentioned, mm. the, the polls and all the other issues, was already struggling to really control the agenda or to to get a sense out there in the community that they were um, they were driving and they um, were focused on cost of living for people. Yeah, and so. I think I think is a big frustration in the government, but it doesn't really matter how they feel. It matters how they look, and I think that the smart hardheads in there know that. and And if they don't actually respond to the concern. If they
2: don't take control, I think this, this is going to get worse for them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're taking a very hard-line response, very hard-line response. And you know from some in that Labor caucus, they will be very uncomfortable about that, including perhaps some on the front bench, including perhaps some of the ministers who are actually prosecuting this. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it.
1: <laughs> Anna Henderson, Chief Political Correspondent at SBS World News, also former ABC. Welcome to the party room hello,
0: Patricia, hi, Fran, and I've got my diplomat cocktail. I discovered there's one called the diplomat recently. And so imagine I'm drinking that right now, even though I'm clearly just having a coffee.
2: Right up your alley, Anna. Thanks for joining us. Anna, um, amongst all the rancor we've been talking about here already on the Party Room, some big news in the Parliament this week, some sad news. The father of reconciliation, Patrick Dodson, will step down from his role as Labor Senator for WA. He's been a powerhouse advocate for First Nations people for so long, for many, many decades. Pat Dodson has spent working to improve the life of Indigenous Australians, but also, importantly, to try and heal the divide between Indigenous Australians and the rest of Australia. In recent times, in recent months, he's been battling cancer and he says the life-threatening illness has left him unable to discharge his duties as senator. His parting message was characteristically laced with some gracious advice on what we all need to do to build a reconciled Australia. And I recommend to anyone listening that if you can get a chance to hear his final press conference, do it. But here's a little of what Patrick Dodson had to say when he announced his retirement.
0: I do leave this place with some sense of sorrow. In that, um, as a nation, we were not able to, uh, to respond positively to the referendum, to the, prov- the provision and the proposition for the referendum, because I think that would have helped our country. Uh, obviously, 60% of Australians disagreed uh, with that proposition. So you now have in this country an Australian problem. It's not an Aboriginal problem. We need to seriously think now of the f- way in which our civil society. Knit together with its diversity and differences.
2: Senator Patrick Dodson announcing his retirement. He will depart on the 26th of January, Australia Day, of course, and I'm sure that date is no accident. But Anna, how significant is this departure of Patrick Dodson and his signature Acuba from the Parliament?
0: Oh, well, this is a giant of the Indigenous Affairs movement. His you know, entry into Parliament uh, really helped, I think, to cement the idea for a lot of younger Indigenous political talent that this was a path that they could take. We've seen uh, the Parliament grow in terms of Indigenous representation uh, since he arrived here in Canberra. When he delivered his final uh, speech to Parliament yesterday, he reiterated some of those points and that graciousness continued throughout. There was no mean spirit in how he was addressing the referendum result, a result which he really watched largely from a hospital bed as he was getting treatment for cancer. Uh, And there are many within the movement who uh, believe that if he had been able to play a prominent role in the campaign, the outcome could have been very different in terms of his ability to communicate uh, that message of reconciliation. Just to kind of give you a sense, though, of just... how he was revered within his staff and within the Indigenous community. While he was speaking in Parliament yesterday, I was sitting in the press gallery and there were actual audible sobs from the gallery, from some of the people watching on as he gave that final speech saying the nation is at a crossroads on Indigenous affairs, that there has to be a way forward out of the referendum results. So uh, he leaves with an extraordinary legacy from the parliament. Still, he says, work to do, uh, but we won't hear that extraordinary booming
1: voice and his sort of mm. sense of reason in the portfolio here in Canberra any longer. We are certainly at a an important juncture at trying to get that right, for sure. Look, I just want to park that and, and move, if we can, to the midterm slump, as we've kind of been trying to describe it for the government. It's lost some of its momentum following the defeat of the voice referendum we were just talking about. And and we've talked about some of the factors that have led to this. Obviously, this messy couple of weeks on the High Court's ruling but also cost of living pressure. I think that one's the most acute one and one that really means something to people in, in a very real sense. Anna, you've been around politics for a while too. Is it just a standard midterm slump or is something deeper happening? I mean, we know John Howard had a terrible time in his first term and really it was pretty difficult for him as well to win that next election. He did, but it was it was hard. Where is the government at? Well, I think the government's at the point where it's thinking
0: about minority options, which must be quite terrifying uh, for people on the front bench. I mean, it it, it of course wants to see itself move forward into a majority position, but you know there are so many factors now at play in terms of different electorates and how this cost of living pressure is unfolding quite unpredictably. So in terms of the way this week was supposed to unfold, if the government was to write the playbook of how it would be reported, they wanted cost of living to be front and centre and their ability to cut through on what they've already achieved through budget measures and the announcements that have come through in that first 18-month period. That's what they wanted to be selling and prosecuting. And of course, it's been completely overtaken by this migration and indefinite detention debate, the High Court delivering its its detailed reasons. That's just allowed the opposition to really gain the upper hand in question time and in the political debate. There hasn't been the cut through uh, that the government was hoping for. But also, you know, the Reserve Bank and, and the measures it's taking, clearly having an enormous impact in the community down to things like people not attending medical appointments or on the weekend, I went to a trampolining <laughs> sort of birthday uh, <laughs> place in Canberra that a lot of people uh, spend their birthdays at with their kids. And they told me that they've had hardly any bookings over the summer. And that to them uh, speaks to the fact that people don't have the disposable cash to to, to do these things uh, that they might've expected to do. And in the lead up to Christmas if the economy is in turmoil and people don't have cash in their wallet, it really bites mm. because there's expectations around how you have a holiday, how you have a Christmas day, how you buy presents. So it's all kind of ballooning for the government and what's happened at home clearly is a malaise in many electorates that the opposition has been capitalising on. Don't forget as well that Peter Dutton, as opposition leader, has sort of meticulously gone through numerous electorates over the past couple of months going to their food uh, kitchens and their sort of uh, groceries. Stores that are allowing people to come in and buy food at really reduced prices. So he's continued to kind of hit that note about where the government is
2: failing on economic policy and how it's hurting you around the kitchen table. So Anna, you mentioned there the government's already looking minority government options. Just to remind people, the opposition had an historically bad result at the last election. They lost, I think, sixteen seats, and they, I think they're further than that behind now. But the government only holds holds office by a very small number of seats. So it won't take much for it to be pushed into minority, which is different for, to, to allow for a coalition win. Are you saying the government is actively looking at its best options for minority government? Is Anthony Albanese actually acknowledging you know, our losses on the cards? look, that's
0: not something that I've had a personal conversation about with the Prime Minister, but it's certainly something that in the Labor Party right now, as they look at the different pressures on them on very different fronts and what could play out in the lead up to the next election, is it a possibility they may have to look at whether or not there is a need to look to the crossbench uh, to find support to maintain their
1: reign? So what are the options now available to the government? Let's look at the actual economic figures that have come out. The OECD's report uh, was published this week. And, and it's some good news for the government, suggesting that maybe we've hit the peak for interest rates, uh, that that would be absolutely welcome news for the government, mm-hmm. and that there might be even cuts uh, next year. Now, of course, prediction the predictions, but it is the OECD. It's not insignificant. At the same time, we've got these backbenchers pushing the government to try and do something more immediate. But we know that uh, they're trying to hold their nerve. Is the government going to blink on this? At this point, the the opposition is spending a lot of time in
0: Parliament trying to essentially snooker the government on different measures, whether it be stage three tax cuts, whether it be more measures to impact on people's uh, family home and where the where the opposition thinks the government might go next, they're trying to ask questions to, to either force them into a, a question mark or to try and uh, force them to say something that they'll live to regret mm. in the lead-up to the next budget. Uh, I don't think the stage three tax cuts are likely at this point to be subject to to change. But who knows? Because it's very hard to predict what will happen after the Christmas break. And the worst thing about the Christmas break for a government is that every MP and senator goes back to their electorate and has to spend a lot of time with their local uh, community, getting a lot of direct feedback about all the frustrations people might have. And I think there is this building sense within the kind of world of you know economic hardheads about what the government might need to do and make hard decisions so that the Reserve Bank isn't always having to come in. Though, as you say, the news from the OECD and the inflation figures uh, in the last day or so Uh, are suggesting that we may not see a rate hike before Christmas and that we might see rates dropping off next year. That'll be incredibly relieving for the government if that plays out.
2: Just on the statutory tax cuts, so the Guardian poll, the essential poll did show that 80% of Australians want them changed in some form. I think that reflects the sense that we know there's a a growing sense of uh, unease or or unhappiness really about what voters see as a as a divide, an economic divide that's really stark at the moment. I said earlier in the podcast, Anna, that I think housing is a major problem for the government. If they don't provide more on this, they could risk alienating the ever growing cohort of voters that rent and then push them towards the Greens, who've really made housing one of their key platforms. So it goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. You know, is is the government planning anything? We, we do have a budget
0: process uh, that's in the lead up to May. So let's see if they do have an answer to that question, Fran. But I think the other aspect that the government is keenly aware of that might be perhaps turbocharging these conversations is how the opposition is able to bring in the concept of migration being a big pressure on housing in that interim period. It's quite clear uh, Dan Tien as a shadow minister and the opposition leader Peter Dutton have been keen to highlight uh, the unprecedented level of migration in the last year and what kind of pressures that could be putting on. So it becomes a policy question, not just of how to deal with the fact that people can't find a place to rent Mm. or afford a house, but also whether government management has contributed to that problem in an acute way and whether or not allowing you know a lot of uh, people from other countries to come to Australia in a short space of time has really exacerbated that issue. So they've got a political Which problem is very difficult, an isn't economic it? problem.
2: Yeah, because it's an economic issue, not having the workers, the skilled workers to drive the economy. That's what business is arguing for. But at the same time, you've got to have houses for people and we don't have enough. Exactly. And
0: so, you know, the housing future fund debate has been there, but I don't know how much that has really cut through. So we've got the mid-year financial update coming up. I think, Patricia, on your show, uh, Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, was really playing down the likelihood of any big additional measures when he lays down that document. Uh, So a lot will be riding on what happens in May. And really, that could be the last budget before the next election. So that is the kind of critical um, gathering point uh, around which the government is going have to find something really significant to deliver to the electorate to say, A, they're in charge, B, they can manage the economy, and C, you're not going to spend another year as a voter yeah. just trying to sort of
1: get to the end of the month with money in your wallet. That's exactly right. Look, this strategy from the opposition leader, he told his party room that he's he only has a one-term election strategy and is looking to win government at the next election in mid-2025 or by then. It's a pretty strong declaration, and if you look at the pathway, as we kind of alluded to before, it's a hard pathway for the opposition still, given I think that the issues have become more entrenched in some of those teal seats. So you know you can't you can't count all of them coming back, maybe some could, but perhaps, but but certainly uh, I think some of them would really struggle. So that means middle Australia is he dreaming? <laughs> it It
0: is. I think interesting to see just how confident the opposition leader finds himself to be right now in terms of making a statement like that, given the path for them is so difficult. And given at the same time that the opposition is making these really strong pronouncements about its capability, and we know that, you know, you build the edifice and then you build the sort of the echo around it and you hope that people believe it and perhaps swinging voters then think, oh, we should go in this direction. But at the same time, what is really curious to me is that uh, the the opposition has been very strong, for example, on the conflict in the Middle East in terms of being very pro-Israel. And if they're looking to the suburbs because the teal seats, you know, perhaps are beyond their ability to connect with at this point, uh, you're looking at suburban areas which have very multicultural communities and big communities uh, that may not have the same uh, perception as them on international affairs. So I I'm still waiting to see how you can mm. carve a path into those suburban seats without having a more nuanced approach on some of those really c- critical flashpoint issues, uh, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. I
1: thought that too, Anna. I've been thinking Western Sydney where they think they can try and make some inroads. Mm. I actually see see the potential for more more of the kind
2: of right leaning um, or, or out of the box kind of independence. Yeah, but that um, still works against Labor, right? Because the the polling in those seats at the moment show v- voters very angry at Labor. They don't think Labor's taken a strong enough stance to in in their own in their own interests in their own defence. I think you're right, but are they going to vote for the coalition? Well, maybe not. But that still gets Anthony Albanese in trouble, doesn't it? So you then have to have this
0: divisive policy strategy going forward where you're going to try and separate sort of different groups within uh, suburban Australia <laughs> and kind of deliver directly to the rump. Uh, and so, you know, that that bodes pretty poorly for the possibly the standard of political debate um, over the next 18 months uh, uh, if that's where the kind of, you know, political strategies is going to take us. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the opposition has made some really... Um, Strong strategic moves on national security, and even just having Labor in a position now where you know this another uh, raft of quickly drafted legislation on indefinite detention is now going to be before the Parliament and then debated and and hopefully voted on for the government before Christmas. I, I just see a chance again for the opposition to just spend an entire week picking apart this legislation, pushing it for it to be more and more potentially uh, you know draconian in its impact, uh, and just making life really difficult for the government for another week before people clock off for the Christmas break uh, where the headlines will be very difficult for the Prime Minister.
2: Another week. Anna, thank you so much for joining us this week and uh, we will get there. We will get to Christmas. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you so much, Anna. Bye. And that's it for the Party Room this week. Don't forget, we do love getting your questions so you can email them to us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au.
1: Yeah, we love getting them. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK.